Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's, um, let's see, it's Tuesday, first day of Cholamoid, and um, I will, uh, I have an interesting idea what to do today. Uh, which is really generated by what I plan to do tomorrow. Uh, as you know, I now do once a week a, a tefillah thing. And I mentioned, which thanks to the Savanskis, and I said that last week I talked about one of the Piyutim. And this week on Chomwet, I have an idea to talk about a very fascinating poem that discusses Piyutim that was written in the 1200s by my favorite poet, Yudal Harizi. And uh, that's what I hope to do tomorrow. So I'm going to use today to do a bio on him. So I'm going to talk today, not about somebody who's a famous rabbi, or a shashiva, or that kind of thing, but somebody from an entirely different genre, a poet. That's what he was. Not like Ibn Ezra, who also wrote on the Chumash and the Tanakh and all that. But um, a, Jew, a class of Jew, a type of Jew that we wouldn't know what to do with today. The from world wouldn't, wouldn't be able to handle this, you know, like what, what, to find the word poet, you know. So I'm going back to the golden age of the Jews in Spain and uh, a different time than we live in totally. Um, and Spain itself is a term that uh, needs a lot of definition, but I'm going to try to do that today and take you into a different period. Uh, we have uh, two sponsors today. One, uh, Rich Clyburn just wrote me uh, this uh, morning or whatever. Then he has a yard site for his um, dad coming up uh, at the, right after uh, Yontif. And he also has, uh, for an aunt, I think he said, yeah, an aunt who died on the last day of Pesach. Uh, Sarah says father is um, Chaim Mayor Ben Mordechai Levi, and the aunt is Sarah Bas Itka Pesha. So then a Shamashad of Elias may say, he wrote me something very interesting about his dad. Who was not a religious person, although he said he was supportive of the son becoming Balshua. But uh, I think this is perhaps no gate to what we're going to talk about today in some degree, because he's talking about his father, and I knew many people like this. I knew many people like this. He wrote to me that his dad was cons- was concerned with being a good person and doing the right thing, and that's what bothered him about religion. You could be a good person without being a Jew or being observant if you were Jewish. That's a fair question. He would often question me. He said about things that bother him about from kite. And he didn't want to hear the answers I gave. Well, <laughs> I think we can all sympathize with that. There's a lot that uh, is not uh, what it should be in the firm world. And towards the end of his life, he was sad. And he told me about the fact that he lived through the war and depression and the world was not a better place. So that's an idealistic individual he's describing over here. Mr. Kleiman's dad, an idealistic individual. I want to tell you something uh, interesting. And um, it'll take me a minute, but it doesn't matter. Uh because, uh, and I'll tell you how it works. I mentioned the other day, I was talking about the Haftorah, Heishi Levovus, Abonim, Abonim, Alovus. I said in my experience, which is true, I've heard where the kids become from and that affects the parents. But I don't really heard cases, or very rarely, where the parents became from, the kids weren't, and they affected the kids. Unless the kids are very young. 
Uh, in fact, I've, I know many cases the other way around. And uh, someone came to the show, Gary Press came to the show, and he said, he wanted to correct me, I mean, in the best way. And he, and he said something interesting, and this was time with Rich Kleidman and his father. And that is, he said, you know, sometimes the parents do things, like Gary said, his parents weren't uh, 100% observant, but they kept kosher in the house. She used to be a lot of people like that. And that left a Roshim on him and led him eventually to become uh, a from guy and a, and a rub and everything else. Uh, 100%. So notice the parents didn't even know what they're doing. You know what I mean? They, they sent up a message. I have a friend. I don't know if I mentioned this to you ever. I won't say the name. Although he's, he said it publicly. But it's, it's nothing to hide. And uh, he actually helped to donate a safe return to my show and years ago. And... Uh, He's and also came from a background that was no, nobody from at all, <clears throat> quite the opposite. But his mother said it when you eat uh, 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 crabs or something like that, shellfish, eat it outside on the porch. They didn't keep kosher, but there was something in the culture that said, you know, there's so something so unJewish about eating shellfish that you eat it on the porch. It makes no sense from the black and white halachic world, and yet it spoke to him. Isn't that interesting? So in other words, hey, she believed. Uh, office sometimes the office do things they don't necessarily see what the what the play out is and that inspires the children even though it wasn't exactly the intention of the parents that the kids should flip and become 100% from and the way Rich is describing his father was a person of great rectitude so he may not have been uh, religious but I'm sure because I know the climates they're people of great rectitude and um, you know the very fact that someone to wants to, to live a, a, a ethical life uh if it's not a firm life, sometimes has the effect of hey, she live also of a bunim. That uh, the, that the uh, you know the example set by the others, although the others didn't necessarily expect that this would turn out, the kids would flip and become from. But nevertheless, there's always a bunim. That's the part from Gary Presky, which is very very interesting. That's why I'm mentioning to you. And maybe that I've heard of. That I've heard of. Wasn't what I was thinking about. The other uh, sponsor are the uh, I'll call the Shabalsky sisters. In other words. Uh, 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 Tapora Frager and uh, C.V. Dinowitz, uh, who are the children of my very good friend, uh, of Fushlema, uh, Rabbi Shavalsky, who's getting to be a centenarian. And uh, this is in honor of several relatives of theirs. Uh, there's Zadie, uh, that's Miss it, that's the, their mother's father, Sam Lafferman, who I remember a little bit, right? And uh, these are people that they, they would like their memories to be remembered, and the yard are around now. And Nathan Cohn and the Bubby Sarshwasi, that would be Rabbi Shavalsky's mom. So there's two different grand, mm, grandfather or grandmother and an uncle. Interesting. And these people came from, uh, you know, from Europe in the hard times, right? Uh, as he said, the had an uncle had no children. And uh, this is from the time when people chopped off their own toes in order to get, rid of, to get out of the Tsar's army and so forth. And this is very Baltimore. And maybe it was like this in your town. People weren't necessarily observant, but they had tremendous... These are people who supported yeshivas. You know, things like that. They had big respect and so forth. And um, in in their... Let me get this straight. The grandfather, that's... And their mother's father, Mr. Zwalski's father, said, Mr. Laffman, I didn't know they had a... They had, what do you call it? Nine kids, of which she, their mother, married Rabbi Zwalski. In other words... From nothing, he went to marry a big Tamil Chacham. And they have grandchildren now in yeshivas and so on and so forth. And the mother's mother, 
No, I got that wrong. That's Rabbi Shavalsky's mother. That's who it is. Right? They're the real thing. They came over and, and, and worked very hard to keep Shabbos in this country. You know, that was like, and they uh, came to the typhoid epidemic times. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so we paid tribute to their memory also in the Shammah Shadav and Aliyah. And um, let's see what we can do. In the end, it's very nice that they're doing this on Cholamoid. We thank always all our sponsors, especially when they're people I know already, they're friends. And uh, I would say, I hope that uh, Parrot's Dinner with Shavar Rafua, which Lamy needs it. And uh, without any further ado, we'll get down to business. Um, but I don't mind taking a few minutes when it's uh, for friends. Now, um, let's get down to business. I want to talk about Yehuda Al-Kharizi. Yehuda Al-Kharizi. Yehuda Ben Shlom Al-Kharizi. Who's that? So like I said, I mentioned time to time, if you follow what I say, he's a, a poet from the golden age of Jews in Spain. He's my favorite. Although you wouldn't think so necessarily. He's certainly not the firmest. And Yehuda Al-Kharizi, we're going back to a certain time and place. Uh, and Sephardi world, not the Ashkenazi world. The Ashkenazi world is too too black and white. The Sephardi is more green and gray, you know. Um, so here's somebody born in Spain, but what does Spain mean? Uh, if you follow what I said or you know a little bit, you will perhaps remember that what we call the Iberian Peninsula, which is Spain and Portugal, was once upon a time conquered by the Arabs, by the Muslims, in the early 700s. The thing is, they conquered 99% or 97% or something like that. But they left a little bit that they didn't take over from the Christians. That was a mistake because it was like cancer. Either you get rid of the whole thing or it's a brachla batola. And once the Christians had their 1% or 2% or 3% of the country all the way up in the, what do you call the Northwest Coast, so uh, the Christians got their act together eventually, and without going through all the details, they started what they called the Reconquista. They started to take back, to reconquest of the Spanish Peninsula, of Spain and Portugal, and they made big progress. So our hero was born in the 11, in 1165 uh, in Toledo, Toledo which is in the belly button of Spain. I was in Toledo. It's a beautiful city. All the Spanish cities are pretty. It's amazing. You know, they don't deserve it, but that's what it is. Now, uh, the a matter of fact, when you go to Toledo, they show you this, the bridge Joseph Cairo crossed over when they left in 1492. It's possible. You know, they keep all the old stuff. Now, um, in Toledo, Toledo, it, it, well, let me think how to phrase this. The Arabs, when they ruled Spain, did many things. First of all, they brought in a lot of Jews because the Jews were not a problem. The Christians were their threat, not the Jews. That's number one. Number two, the Arabs themselves created an unbelievably fancy-schmancy culture. Um, this is what they call the golden age of the Arabs. First of all, Islamic stuff, but that's not of interest to us. They did. There's a lot of impressive business over there. There is. Second of all, they did um, what we call secular uh, studies, the uh, which is independent language, that'd be science, math, uh, you know, philosophy, uh, in every department, you know, astronomy, biology, all this kind of stuff, all which is religiously neutral. Uh, would you agree? I don't think, have you heard of algebra, you know, algebra? There's nothing religious about one or the other, right? Um, so what we call neutral science. And it's built up a lot in the Arab Empire and especially in Spain. Then thirdly, it's what I would call liberal arts. They developed the Arab language and its culture and civilization, the Arab stuff, the Arabic stuff, to a high degree, because they conquered a huge empire, and the Arabs themselves naturally figured, since they conquered an empire, they must be the Amha Nivchar, 
their language must be the Loshan HaKodesh. After all, God is favoring them by conquering everything. They thought Muhammad is it. He's the biggest prophet. Therefore, they, God spoke to him in Arabic. So the Arabic language is tops. And therefore, they're interested in having the coup of the Arab language. And the Arabs have all kinds of dialects. So they said the real super Arabic dialect is the Bedouins and so on and so forth. I won't bore you with all this business. Simply to say, there was a tremendous um, interest in the Arabic language in all of its forms. And the Arabs themselves wrote, produced a whole bunch of writers, uh, philosophers, uh, especially poets, especially poets, that did amazing things. I don't read Arabic, but I know. You understand? That's what going to be what we're talking about today. And it blew everybody away. So if you lived in the Middle East, which included Spain, the Arabic language is pretty. You can't take it away. And they did compose amazing things. You can't deny that. And they create amazing culture and the architecture and all this other business. You know, Spain, Cordoba, my goodness. It looked like the, you know, it was a, j just a, the highest uh, level of civilization, it seems. It's a good harmony. It's, there's a lot to talk about. So if you're Jewish, um, especially with Jewish intellectual, including Rabbanim, so you say like this, you know, Jewish religion is, is true, um, but, you know, a from Jew doesn't talk about culture. What the heck is culture? He talks about Torah. So he said, well, they ain't got a Torah like we do, and the Quran is not true. And the Gemara and all that, that's Kodesh Kodashim. Um, and obviously, the Hebrews lost in Kodesh because God didn't speak to Noah Muhammad. He made that up. But he did speak to Adam and Eve and Moshe and Aaron and Dabin and Shlomo. So, you know, that's all in Hebrew. And the Tanakh is uh, Kodesh Kodashim. And the very fact that the Tanakh is Loshan Kodesh means it's Hebrew is the, is the prettiest language by definition. But they didn't know what that meant. You know what I'm saying? Never studied Hebrew. It's not a yeshiva thing to do today. You know what I'm saying? You know, Loshan Kodesh as such, you leave alone. Uh, and so de facto, even the firmest people lived lives, as we do in Chutzlarts today, in which you say like this, I think in English, I'm living in America, you're living in your country. I think in English, I talk in English, I actually feel more comfortable in English. Of course, when it comes to davening, comes to learning, then we do Hebrew and Aramaic. Of course. You know, but you can't deny. And, you know, to some degree, you might sometimes think in Hebrew phrases. But overall, it's just a sad fact. You feel more comfortable in, Hebrew, in English or in French or whatever your country it is. And you translate into Hebrew. That's why the art school is so big. They're putting everything in English. And now into Spanish and to French and other languages. It is what it is. You understand? Now, um... One can sim so one could be a fromak and do the following. Say, listen, the Arabs can have a fancy uh, business. I'm not competing with them in that. I'm dealing with the with the Torah, with the Gemara. That's a sealed area, and that's where we concentrate our efforts. And we don't think in larger sense. Let them go around and think they're the greatest language. That'd be like somebody today saying, for example, can you think of something produced by a from writer that can equal Shakespeare? Honestly, honestly, don't simply say. Uh, uh. You know, Shakespeare's a genius. You can't deny it. You can't deny it, right? Maybe you never took the, the trouble to learn it, but it's a, it's a genius. Uh, so go show me something like that the, 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 the Jews have. You see? So the answer is, well, I don't care about the, the Shakespeare as a guy, and uh, well, well, I don't read that Macbeth, and this and that and the other. Anyway, I just learned Gemara and Jewish stuff, and the heck with Shakespeare. I get it. Uh, of course I get it. But what it means is you're sort of like abandoning the field, and you're saying... When it comes to uh, high writing and fancy ideas and all the rest of it, uh, maybe Shakespeare is okay. You know, maybe better than us, not better than us, but, you know, it's, it, 
Tommy Torba going Malatam, but it's not really any, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's not related to the Jews. Or, or, one can say like this, uh, let's stand up for Lashon Kodesh. Let's stand up for Hebrew. Uh, I don't yield to the fact that Shakespeare is better than us. Uh, I say we're better than it, but then I have to make a case. I can't simply shoot my mouth off. Got to make a case. Show me something in Hebrew or write something in Hebrew, which is good as Shakespeare. Or whatever country you want, you know, in Germany, be good there or something like that. You know, whatever country you want. <laughs> the reason I'm mentioning this is this was the world that was shown to me living in the Arab areas, especially the Gedolei Sfarab, especially, and listen closely, for, for from the 700s to like the 1000s, Ruba the Ruba of Spain was still ruled by the Muslims. So, for example, the 900s, yeah, Chazdeb and Shabrut, and those kind of people, even into the 1000s. Um, so, Spain and Portugal was like two halves. The northern third, roughly fourth or third, was ruled by the Christians, who the Jews and the Arabs considered barbarians. They don't have a language. They have anything fancy. It's just crude. Uh, and the lower two-thirds or so was ruled by the Arabs, in which you have amazing culture. You can express yourself in such fine ways. And the Jews themselves produced a group of intellectuals and scholars in every generation, in the 800s, 900s, 1000s, 1100s, who um, weren't just Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. There was a Haskalah in Spain, not like the Haskalah that was unfrum you know, later in the 19th century. It was a from Haskalah, but it was absolutely a Haskalah. As you know, not just Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. And uh, you, you have in Spain, actually, it's famous for this that you know, the poets, grammarians, philosophers, Ivrit freaks, and things like that. You, you know, that's what they had. Uh, I brought this up time to time. What do you do with a, with a, with a grammarian like Ibn Janach? Ibn Janach, who we all use. Uh, no one in the Yeshiva ever heard of the guy. I mean, he's in the Rishonin book and of Art School, if you want to go like that. But, you know, he he wrote on, on nouns and verbs and things of that nature, like what's he does. And the answer is there's a marginal phenomenon. Uh, it's always a, these are what you call elitist phenomena. Uh, they're matters of what we call Jewish culture. To the from Jew today, to say Jewish culture almost sounds like unfrum. That's a sad. Uh, this, it, it, because it's not true. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. In other words, people will say, if it's not just Gamar, 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 or something like that, something along those lines, halacha, you know, uh, then it's not from. There's no Jewish culture. This is Torah. Or or not. Okay? Now, by the way, this is an issue that has divided Jews from Jews for a thousand years. For a thousand years. There have been people on both sides of this. Okay? That's just, that's just interesting by itself. So, in Spain, there definitely was a large element that was very interested in Jewish culture. Not against the Torah, but side by side with it. Okay? That's why I say it's hard to know. What do you do with Yehudah Levi? Something like that. He wasn't spending all day long learning Gemara. So what do you do with that? Okay? You serve from. And if you tell me these people are bad, how did their prayers get accepted in the synagogue that we all recite them today? They're at the very epicenter of the davening on the Yom Naram and other times of the years. And if you're Sephardi, your mamish got this stuff in the Slichos and all the rest of it. <clears throat> so it's just, <clears throat> to my mind, a very interesting phenomenon. Now, um... Mind you, therefore, that you have Jews growing up who are intellectual. They want to get an education, and they were provided by their parents' of education. Very often, an education, and the Rambam was like that also, by the way, under peculiar circumstances. He got an excellent education, maybe the Rambam too, by the way. Maybe the Rambam too. He flipped and became very yeshivish, but his education, he had an MD. He had an MD. 
Now, um, so these are just um, fascinating uh, cultural uh, clashes, maybe. Is that the right word? And in this world, the Jews were profoundly affected by the Arab culture. Uh, and it expressed itself in several ways. One of the ways it expressed itself was the Jews totally indulged in the Arab culture the way American Jews today or British Jews or, or in the American other culture. I'm asking you the following question. Uh, did you or your children read Harry Potter and all this other junk when it came out? Yeah, you did. Right? They consumed it. One, two, three. I, is nothing uh, Jewish about it. Yeah, I know. But the dirty truth is, people like Harry Potter. Or I'm just giving a muscle. You understand? Uh, and whatever the, the current thing is. You know, it can come in there. They really liked it. So, uh, the uh, Kalva Homer, by the way, high culture, not just, you know, dumb literature. High culture. So, there are plenty of people saying, I want history. I'm interested in philosophy. I'm interested in poli-sci. I'm interested in this and, and that. You know, there's, it, there, there's a tremendous chachma out there. Tremendous chachma out there. I don't want to just confine myself to the Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. That's not what I want to do. There's a ton of people like that. In fact, there's a growing number of people like that. In Israel, even in Sharmi got people like that. They're just hiding it, you know. So that's, that's, that's that thing. So one way the interest in the Arabic culture, the language, the poetry, the grammar, and all this other business, was that Jews were totally into it. And I'll repeat what I said before. The Rambam was, and many, many others, okay? Shmuel Nugget, you know, I don't want to give all the names of all the biggies of the 9, 10, 11 hundreds in Spain. That's one thing. Another way you did do this, another way you did do this, was to try to um, do a Hebrew uh, knockoff or imitation of what they're doing. And that's what's most interesting to us when we talk about the golden age of Jews in Spain. Mahu Afato. If the Arabs make poems, the Jews got into poetry. Right? That's how Yehuda Levi and these other people, Ibn Gabir and the others started. They saw the Arabs doing it, they said we should do it in Hebrew. Okay? Uh, they saw that the Arabs are interdictic of the Arab language, and so they produced a whole generations of people who said, no, we want to learn the dictic of Lush and Kodesh. That's how the dictic started. Uh, the Arabs are doing Arabic philosophy and so on and so forth. We're going to do a Jewish philosophy. So it's imitative, you get it? But the argument would be our imitation is better because ours is Lush and Kodesh. That's what that is. And then there were those, and, and our hero is part of this phenomenon, Al-Kharizi. There are those who say, you know, um, the Jews should compete with the Arabic and outperform them in order to show that we can. And we have to get rid of our inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis the Arabic language and culture. That's already more complex. Uh, now, Spain, as I said before, was mostly ruled by the Arabs, and the Christians started taking back bit by bit like a Pac-Man part. By 1085, the year 1085, the Christians, again, I'll skip all the reasons, it's a fascinating subject, but now it's not the time, they took the, the, the city of Toledo, Toledo, uh, from the Arabs. It was a major Christian conquest, and uh, they held it. And that became the, the capital of the Christian kingdom of Castile. And so, but when they did that, so it was clear to the conquered peoples, the Arabs who surrendered and the Jews living there, that the Christians coming in are barbarians, man. Now when I say barbarians, I mean in the cultural sense. They don't have this highly developed culture the way the Arabs did. 
They don't have this sense of, you know, math and science and architecture and philosophy. They're just, you know, rough Christian knights and killers, you know, who were just stronger than the Muslims, and they won the battle and took over. So the conquered peoples, which included the Muslims and the Jews, continued to feel that the Arab, that the, the culture into which they'd been born was a vastly superior culture than the Jewish one. I'm sorry, than the, than the Christian one. So you guys conquered us, we're, we're, still, we're still much better than you. I, uh, I would imagine, I'm thinking along the lines, let's say, of China. The Chinese have been conquered by a lot of peoples, but the Chinese always held that they're a billion times higher culture than the others, and little by little, they, you know, they, they prevail. You get it? There are countries like that. Uh, so, if you're Jewish, and you're living after 1080, let's say from 1085, for another 100, 150 years, in places like Toledo, and other areas that the Christians conquered from the Muslims, although now the government is under the hands of the Christians, and the Jews learned to kiss up to them in order to get along, and the Jews made themselves of use to the new leaders, as they always had to do. And, uh, you know, they got in with the government contracts and all the rest of it, no question about that. But at the level of culture, first of all, they're not Christians, so they didn't do the Christian stuff, they do the Jewish stuff. And number two, at the level of secular culture, the secular culture in which they, uh, what shall I say, secular culture in which they indulged would be Arab. So I'm describing a weird situation. I'm Jewish, the time shown him. I'm living in Christ in the 1100s. Like, for example, um, Hira Levi, who lived exactly as I'm describing. Exactly. And I'm Jewish, so there's no question about my, my religious belief. And I'm Shomitar Mitzvah and so forth. Uh, so forget the religious business. But when it comes to my secular interests, and let's say, for example, me, a guy like myself, I'm interested in history. Someone else interested in medicine. Someone else interested in science. Someone else in philosophy. So the degree I'm interested in something else besides uh, Judaism, uh, it would be in the Arab stuff. Again, it would be the Arab stuff. Again, look at me. I'm interested in history, mainly written in the English language. I mean, I have a couple other languages, but I'm just saying mainly in the English language. Because I'm American Jew. Uh, if somebody was Chinese, it would be interested in Chinese history. You know, that kind of thing. So the Arabic cultural influence on Spanish Jews... For a long time, it's just interesting, uh, remained very powerful. We have other examples of this in Jewish history, as late as the 20th century, when the Czech Jews, even when Czechoslovakia became an independent country, still held on to their German culture. It was like a Mishagas. <clears throat> but the Jews, in the process of becoming modern in the 19th century, treated German and German culture like I'm, like I'm talking about now. The Imam Shal is kind of a Kurdish Kedoshim, not in the religious sense, but in the secular and cultural sense. So that's how the Jews were in the time of our hero. So he lived a very complex time. And uh, he's born in Toledo, Toledo, but he's born 80 years later. The Christians conquered a place in 1085. He's born in 1165. So he would be um, about 30 years younger than the Rambam, approximately. Okay? So he's a contemporary of Maimonides in a later age. But listen closely. Maimonides was born south of Toledo, in Cordoba. What's the difference? Maimonides was born in an area still ruled by the Arabs. So who cares? Here's the irony. By the time the Rambam was born, the Muslims had flipped to the to the fanatical level, 
and they ushered Judaism in southern Spain. That's the story of the Rambam. From 1150 around, the Muslims, again, I'm just skipping a lot of details, made it usher to be a Jewish Jew living in southern Spain, in the Arab part. By contrast, if you lived north of that, in Toledo or anywhere north of that, that's the Christian part, and there you're allowed to be Jewish. Isn't that funny? So it was safer and possible to remain in Spain and stay from Jew openly in the Christian part, whereas in the Muslim part, somebody like the Rambam, somebody like Maimonides, early in his career had to flee that area and go, you know, to other countries. Uh, so that's just who we, we're dealing with. So we got a guy who is the contemporary of Rambam Malus in Spain, but it's coming under very different circumstances. Now, we don't know that much, but I can I can I can tell you this. He was given an excellent education by his parents of a certain type. Not a yeshivish education, what I would call to be a uh, excellent um, liberal arts education. No, it was an excellent Arabic culture, that kind of thing, public school, college education of that type. And an excellent education in Haskalah, which would therefore mean anything Jewish but not Gomorrah. Uh, and remember, it's Spain in the 1100s, and so... There's Ivrit, there's Tanakh. Um, I'm sure he knew how to learn somewhat. There's no question about it, as you'll see in a minute. Uh, you know, Mishnayis, he knew, and things like that. We'll see, translated the Rambam, Pish Mishta. But his main education, and certainly his main interest, would be in what I would call the Haskalah of the Middle Ages. So he's a Shomer Shabbos, he's a Shomer Torah Mitzvah, right? Sephardi style. But having said that, you know, he's not a, a riff. You know, he's not a Rimigash. He's not a Gemara person or any of that kind of thing, as far as we can tell. That's fine. Not everybody had to be a cookie cutter in the Middle Ages, especially among the Spartan. They had an elite that was interested in the rabbinic literature. Then they had a different elite that was interested in Jewish culture. I repeat, in Jewish culture. These are the people who would would have uh, the equivalent, we don't have this nowadays, equivalent of an excellent Hebrew, Jewish, liberal arts education. Uh in Hebrew literature and that sort of thing. And he was a genius of a certain type. Now, maybe if you go into learning, whatever, but that's not what happened. And so imagine a guy, if he's born in 1165, so imagine in the 1170s, 1180s, this is when the Rambam, is, who's much older, is writing the Marnavuchim, right, in, in Egypt. That's when our hero is growing up in Toledo. And learning, you know, uh, Arabic, cold, by that I mean, you know, all the Arab junk, the Quran, the whole nine yards, everything. But also the Jewish stuff, okay? So certainly there's nobody with a bigger buck than him in Tarshav Iksav. Whoa, without question. And he knows Tarshav pretty well also. Not like the Rambam, of course, you know, but you know, pretty well. The question becomes, of course, like this. How do you make a living at that? <laughs> this is the problem always with liberal arts degree. Liberal arts degree. How do you make a living at that? There wasn't any universities at that time, you know? How, how do you make a living at that? You're not going to be a rub. Rub has no rabbinic literature. So what do you do? So, um, basically, you say like this, I'm a Jewish intellectual. I repeat, so I make a living of that. This was his problem all of his life. This is the problem of all the great poets. Okay? All the great Jewish poets. You know, like, uh, who are you, what are you, and what is it? Now, to cut down to the bottom line, the only way you can make a living in that kind of business is to find sponsors, to find patrons, 
That is true of artists in every culture. Get it? Art throughout history has been the thing. You got to kiss up to some rich people and they have to pay you, to, you know, to, 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 to make you, yeah, so you can have Parnassal, that'll enable you to go and do your art stuff. Okay? Which is why a lot of the plastic art that you find in European culture, you know, the paintings, the the, the sculptures, all the rest of it, are patrons' families and rich people and all the rest because they don't want to paint them. Okay? They don't want to paint them. So if it's Jewish, you have to find somebody of a certain type of gvir. What type of gvir we're talking about over here? Somebody who appreciates, like uh, with the kind of stuff I'm talking about, who appreciates the Ivrit, who appreciates the Tanakh, who appreciates poetry, which I can't tell you, in America today, poetry is a joke. Because America is such a Philistine culture, we say, hey, make money at it. You say, if it doesn't make money, I'm not interested. Uh, it's anti-culture America. It's anti-culture. But you know, wasn't always like in Europe, there's such thing called culture. So poetry, uh, philosophy, languages, things like this, very, very cool among a certain elite of society, not among the Hamunam. So, the, and the elite of society was rich. They're the ones that have the money because they themselves had an education that included the kind of stuff we're talking about. And you can't have an appreciation for art and poetry and that kind of stuff if you're not educated into it. So that's the vicious... The cycle, you understand, and um, therefore he he, as we would say today, he had an elitist education, like you know, for the equivalent of American prep school and all the rest of it. But he didn't come from rich family. He didn't come from rich family. So how how exactly does that work? You know how you make a living. So uh, when he's twenty, thirty years old, I don't know exactly. He he's looking to make a parnosa. Uh, by the way, he was. He was tall, dark, and handsome. We have actually an Arab later who who described met him and described him in his older age. And he didn't have a beard either. The guy said, "So I don't get that. <laughs> maybe Kunkro beard, maybe he shaved it. I, I don't know." Uh, and he it, so here you have a a a, a weirdo monkey. Uh, you have a Jewish guy from Jew, you know, Shomer Shabbos, as we say today. Uh, he's a bucky in Arabic. A culture, well, that's interesting to a Jewish community, I guess. Uh, and he's also bucky in many aspects of of Judaism, other than Gemar, 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 right? Gemar and Allah. That's of interest to some, not the others. Art is a thing that enriches your life if you want to be into it, but you can go through life without it. You know, and I know people who study music appreciation, that kind of business, or art appreciation, is it, the term is called building. You're building a side of yourself. You're cultivating. Make yourself a fuller person. Or not, you know, or person like, I'm just not interested in that. Now, I can always say, well, you're not interested because you don't appreciate. There's a whole side of life that's out there. You don't appreciate. Person says, well, I don't care. <clears throat> so this is not an argument you're ever going to win. <clears throat> but it's a Matthias. Uh, and so what does a guy like this do? Well, he moved from Spain to southern France, nearby, Provence. <clears throat> he came there. This is the late 1100s. It's the time of the Rived. Uh, let me put it this way. He ended up in Lunyel. Lunyel is a small Jewish community in uh, Provence in southern Spain, in southern France, near, near the Riviera. These were tiny Jewish communities which had big Torah traditions among small populations. Notice he had a lot of towns and the, the Jewish population wasn't big and it, it included their share of Amaratim and dumbbells, for sure, but it also included an interesting per, 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 percentage of gigantic Talmudic plus maskilim, like the temp I'm talking about. You, get it? you had that too. And sometimes the combination of both. 
So you had Jewish intellectuals who were interested in masters sometimes of Torah, and in addition to Torah, Jewish culture. So that would be where a guy like this would fit in. So when he would move, when he moved to Luniel, it's a very fascinating time. The Rambam was still alive. If you know anything about the Rambam, he was like in despair because he he uh, was criticized by the Jews of the Middle East, like Baghdad and the others, uh, because he didn't learn like to go on him and all the rest. So he got a lot of grief from them. So he basically gave up. He said these, what we call the Syria, Iraq, is all full of dummies. That's the Rambam's opinion. They don't learn, but the problem is they don't know. They don't learn, and therefore they get everything wrong. That's why they criticize my books and so on and so forth. But in in the last decades of his life, the Rambam established a relationship with these non-Sephardic Jews from southern France. Luniel has a lot of letters back and forth. These are letters actually the Rambam writes in Hebrew, which is rare for him. And uh, he kind of cultivated a whole a relationship with them. Uh, the Rivet, his biggest critic, is is from that area. And Pascal is near, near Luniel. So um, our hero ends up in this different environment. Now listen closely. These Jews are in southern France. Southern France was never conquered by the Muslims. Never by the Arabs. Um, it's always held by the Christians. It's not far from Spain, so they know about it, but the language they speak is the French junk, you know, the Provençal, the southern French, plus the Hebrew and the Ivrit and their own dialects. So what I want to get to is that in the time he's there in the late 1100s, um, and the Rambam, I repeat, is still alive, is a fascinating place intellectually and culturally. You had people that are big Talmud Chachamah. At the same time, they're also interested in things other than Gemar, Gemar, Gemar. Uh, one of the, one, mainly or partially because they had correspondence with the Rambam, and reading his writings opened up whole new vistas to them. It used to be just like Ashkenazi, you know, just Gemar, 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 halacha, halacha, halacha. And now they're discovering all this new stuff. And I would say in general, the way to describe these people were they knew that there's a lot of stuff out there Yiddishkeit-wise. There's a lot of, uh, out there Machshava-wise. It's all written in Arabic, like the Rambam's writings, or Sadigon, or the Chavaz al or those sorts of things, in Judeo-Arabic. And they want to get it. So basically, they need translators who can do a good job to bring the classics of the Spanish and Arabic-speaking Jews in Yiddishkeit available to people who can't read Arabic. I know it sounds funny. Let me just give you an example. The best books on Diktuk were written in Arabic. Isn't that funny? The best in poetry, Jewish poetry. Uh, what's his name? Imjanach. Uh, and uh, the other one. They, I mean, they wrote their stuff in Arabic. Now, that's like art school, you know, writing on Jewish stuff uh, in English. It's a little bit weird, but we lived that life. So I'm talking about a time of cross-cultural, you know, currents. It is it, very interesting. So uh, our hero ends up in southern France, and he meets people who can appreciate him, uh, including Gedoli Ador. And this is not long after the Rambam wrote the Mordevuchim. And one of the things they're interested in, not the only thing, is to translate the um, stuff out there that's not in, in Lushan Kodesh into Lushan Kodesh so that they can access it. And he finds patrons, sponsors, who will pay him a decent salary. He should translate some of the Aristotle books into Hebrew, which he does. And most interestingly, when he came there, uh, which with the Rambam was an old man at that time living in Egypt. So 
the Rambab had hooked up by correspondence with Ibn Tibbin, Shmuel Ibn, Ibn Tibbin, to translate the Mernavuchim, because he already heard that a lot of Jews who don't speak Arabic are interested in this. Of course, the Mernavuchim is, is controversial in many places, but people are fascinated with it. And um, the main guy, it's, just a, it's a long arichas, I'm trying to make this short. The main gadol in Luniel was Rabbeinu Yehonas and Akoin. In the yeshivas, you might remember him, He's like in the back of Erevin, I think, and all this. He was a, a very big Talmud Chacham. He was a Talmud Muvik of the Ravid. But even though the Ravid is the opponent of the Rambam, he sided with, with the Rambam against his Rebbe. It's, it's a, that's a story by itself. Okay? He was the, the, the biggest Chassid of the Rambam, even though he learned by the Ravid. And he's from Provence. That's why the Rambam liked him a lot. And uh, he commissioned. Uh, he, as soon as he heard that the and he was in correspondence with the Rambam, Oh my goodness, you should see how the Ramam writes to Rabbeinu Yonas and Akoin. He says, now that I met you by correspondence, I know that when I go, there'll be somebody left. And I was thought the whole generation is shot and everybody's a dummy, like the Jews in the Middle East. And uh, But you're Gavaldic and Chachmi Lunyel. And finally, I see you guys know how to learn. Uh, sometimes he says, why do you ask me a dumb Shiloh? Uh, I expect better from you. But a lot of times he writes to me, he says, oh, your Kasha was Taka, good Kasha. I like it. It made me think. <laughs> you understand? That's high praise coming from the Rambam. That's high praise. And uh, Benny Yonason, I'll come in, I don't know if you notice, wrote, wrote uh, um, what you see in the back of the Gemara, like on Ervin, so he wrote in the whole Shas. Meaning he wrote a commentary on the riff, which could have been and should have been like the, Ra- if you follow what I'm saying, like the Rashi on the riff. Could have turned into a separate book. Um, that's a matter for scholars. It didn't exactly turn out that way, but, uh, and, and really, as many, like the Ron and the others, he's really writing in the Shas, using the riff as a as a principle of organization. But anyway, he's a Rishon, you know, like a regular Gemara-type Rishon, uh, one of the biggies. Now, this remaining years that come when he heard the Ramos writing Murnavuchim on philosophy and Ashkava, so he said, oh, I want to get it to, into Hebrew, I can't read the Arabic. And so he made the Shidduch, I believe, with Ibn Tibbon, who lived in that town, and he said, you translate it. And Ibn Tibbon translated, and Ibn Tibbon was a son of translators. The family felt that they owned the field of translation. Nobody else should interfere over there. And they developed their own system. The father had already translated the Sajigon, and I think also the Chobosol of Ovis, if I remember correctly. That's what they did, you know what I mean? And um, he corresponded with the Rambam, and the Rambam said, oh, I see you're taking this seriously. And both Ibn Tibbon and the Rambam were math science types, and, you know, uh, detail freaks and things like that. That's who they were. And therefore, they, they had what we would call a Safa Mishitefes. You know, uh, they, they could speak properly. And, you know, they've been telling wrote to me, so I don't understand this word in Arabic. Give me a good Hebrew word. And uh, in the end, the Murnavuchim is of such a nature, it borrows a lot from the Arabic and the uh, and the other non-Jewish, uh, you know, the Greek uh, philosophical terms. There are no good Hebrew expressions for that. He had to invent words. You understand I me? Mean, that's what they've been doing. Did. He had to invent words. There's a whole literature on this stuff. You know, neologisms, we would call it. They're Hebrew, but, you know, he took them out of the original form, used his own language. The long and the short of it is that the first and most famous translation, which is used until today, of the Murnavuchim, this most controversial and influential book in uh, Jewish Hashkafa from the Middle Ages till today, was translated by Shmuel ibn Tibbon, but everybody knows is a boring is a boring translation. You know, Satan knows 
it's not fun to read uh, because, precisely because he wrote in a very wooden way, um, it's okay, and I'm going to be perfectly honest. Over the years, I used to think, eh, eh, eh. over the years, I've actually changed my mind, and I find it, it, it it's quite clear because um, I had to co-teach once or twice at Hopkins uh, seminar in the Marnebuchim, and, you know, you look for, you know, I bring different translations there, uh, but I can totally hear that somebody would say the Ibn Timon is like, is, is not easy um, to read, nor is all of it perfect. You never get it right when translation. I used to translate for the art school, so you never get it 100% right, and you always change it a little bit just by the act of translation. Well, the long and the short of it is, the Rabbeinu Yonason Akoin, who was the big rabbi in Luniel, he said, all right, it's a nice translation, but then he approached our hero, who he liked, apparently, and he said like this, you know, um, I see that unlike Ibn Tibbon, who knew Arabic the way you study a foreign language, you understand, because Ibn Tibbon was living in France. You were born in an Arabic culture. You were born in Spain, in Toledo, which still had the Arabic stuff in there, the culture. And by you, Arabic is 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 like your first or second language. You know what I mean? You're, you're totally master of this. So, uh, you know, and in Arabic, you know, a lot of stuff comes from the Quran and all these other places. See, mama's got to be a bucky in the Arab way of thinking to uh, to get this right, uh, and so you do another translation, okay? And I'll pay you because he was rich, and that's what he did. So our hero Yehud Al Harizi uh, translated the Mernabuchim, retranslated on his own, which immediately made Ibn Tibbet angry because everybody liked Al Harizi's better, and to this day it's a big fight among those who care about this sort of little thing. You know which translation is better. And the general consensus is al Kharizis is a hundred times easier to read, but but he, but he takes liberties and doesn't get it exactly the way the Ramam did. But neither is Ibn Tibbin. So this is already hair splitting business uh, for the experts. And this is why in the twentieth century we've had a whole bunch of retranslations in Murna Bukham. I don't know if you know that or not. Uh, what do you call it? The Rabbi Kapach was a Yemenite, so he knows better than the other two, uh, or at least he, he says he does. And he, you know, translated even more exact. And now you have Professor Schwartz, and you have other people, whatever. There's like a, a science of this business. So what am I talking about over here? I'm talking about a translator. So a guy with Arab culture, he's a Moscow, and, he, and he's a Matarium. He's a translator of Arabic works or Judeo-Arabic works into Hebrew. What do you call it? Is that a Rishon? I mean, he's in the Rishonim book, but is that a Rishon? He is in the article of Rishonim, but is that a Rishon? Uh, now, Jonas and Akoin and the others liked it. By the way, uh, the Christians found the Ibn Timon translation to be very, uh, and as a result, uh, they all flocked to the uh, Al-Kharizi translation, which was the basis of all the Latin translations and other European translations on the Murnavuchim. The non-Jewish world learned pretty quickly of the Rambam's book, and it spread like wildfire among Christian intellectuals. Uh, Thomas Aquinas lived in the 1200s, who was bitterly anti-Semitic, was the number one Catholic theologian, the Thomists, and he quotes the Rambam a lot in his books. Um, obviously, he's using the Al-Kharizi translation for it. You see what I'm saying? It's down to that level of specificity. Uh, and it is a fact. I, by the way, have it. Years ago, I was somewhere, and there was like a set of like 12 books that somebody published. I think it was originally in Russia, like in Odessa or wherever, uh, in Nakuda. So the way I like it, they have the whole Al-Kharizi thing in three volumes, Plus the Kuzri, plus the Chavazalbovas, plus this, plus that, you know, a lot of, of classic works. And, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, 
you know, it's delightful. If, if you like this sort of thing. Uh, now, again, if you want to be eyeing every little point of the rambam, which you kind of do, it might not be the way you want to go, but if you want to know the Murnavuchim in a basic level, which is how you start, then there's no question you do it al Kharizi. This Rabbi Yonasana Cohen liked it so much, he said, I want you to translate the Papir Shmishnais. And that's what he did on Zeroim. So when you and I, um, if you're of a certain age, now maybe this Ozwa Hutter has changed it, I don't know. Uh, but until my time, until recently, if you have the regular Gemaras and you, you know, in the back of the Gemara, they have Pierce Mishnah, the Rambam, especially on Brachos, especially on the Hakdama, you know, of the Rambam to Peg's Rum, where he has his whole long introduction to Tarsh That's Al Harisi's translation. Okay? That's Al Now, there are retranslations in our day and age. There are. Uh, and if you care about that, but I'm just trying to tell you, this guy who was a poet and not a big Tamakachim became part of the yeshiva culture by the fact that everybody who ever read the Pirish Mishnah Rambam in Hebrew translation has read his stuff. It's just interesting, you understand? And I haven't even scratched the surface of this guy. So he spent X number of years um, living as a translator. So that means these rich people like Yonas and Cohen, who was a god and obviously a, a great person, Gave him a salary. I mean, that, that's what it boils down to. I mean, gave him a, a decent salary. It's nice work when you can get it. Um, by the way, Reviewers and Cohen, uh, I'm planning to do this later in the summer if I have the opportunity. He's a big player in the uh, Maimonidean controversies because when the Ram was still alive, this 16 year old kid named Yad Ramah, who became the Yad Ramah, attacked the Ram of what he wrote in the Sanhedrin. And Reviewers and Cohen blew. So, those. He attacked him from a frummy perspective, from a right-wing perspective. He said the Rambam is not from enough. So I just want you to understand, a 16-year-old kid is saying the Rambam is not from enough. The Rambam was like 60. And, uh, you know, uh, and Yonas Cohen, who was Godel Ador in that part of the world, he came down like a ton of bricks on the Yad Ramah. He said, you Peshar, who do you dare attack? How dare you even speak about somebody like this? You understand? So he didn't, he didn't address the specific questions that this boy raised in Sektamad, you can read it yourself in Yad Ramah and Sanhedrin in the beginning of Perichelik if you're interested. He didn't address those issues. He, the chutzpah involved uh, was what ticked him off, which is a very old-fashioned uh, rabbinic approach. Uh, the substance is one thing, but how dare you even, you know, imagine a, a young guy like you, a nothing, you're still in the diapers, and you criticize him, God will adore like the Rambam, you, you know, you, you don't even get into the park. That's <laughs> it. You know, you don't get into the stadium. You definitely can't play ball, right? You don't even get into the. You don't get into a block away from the stadium. You definitely can can have nothing to say about the ball game. It's just very interesting. So that was the employer, but um, I guess the money ran out. I don't know why. Maybe Yonason Cohen died. I mean, he did uh, go to Israel eventually, uh, they say. But our hero returned back to Spain, and uh, this is not a real living. You understand? This is not a profession. If he had gone for medicine, he would have a profession. Uh, to be a public intellectual, as they say, a translator, uh, a poet, and all this, eh, you know, it's not a parnosa. Now, he felt that uh, the problem is that in Spain, the Jews are little by little losing the Arabic culture because the Christians are becoming more and more. It's late 1100s, around 1200. And there's less and less interest in the Arabic stuff. In France, they're only interested in translating a few, 
you know, Arabic language books like the Murnabukim or whatever, things like that in the Hebrew, they don't appreciate his language skills. Let me go to the Middle East where they actually speak Arabic. And there, maybe somebody like me will have appreciation. And anyway, he wants to see Eretz Yisrael. Now, I can only imagine from all this that he wasn't married. I don't know. How, I've never seen anything talk about a wife and children. I don't, I don't know. I just don't know how to explain it. Uh, this is one of the things that happens when you have historical characters. You just don't know the information. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But he he um, he made Aliyah. He, he moved uh, to the Middle East. Uh, he, he took a ship. He describes it just like Huda Levy from uh, France to um, Alexandria. And uh, he spent time in all these places. From Alexandria to Cairo and Cairo to Israel. And uh, how does a guy like this make it? I mean, you, know, you come with no money. The answer is you got to land in one of these communities. you got to find the richy rich type people. You have to kiss up to the right guy. And hopefully you find a patron. Maybe I'll write a poem about you in Arabic or Hebrew about your family and immortalize you. Or maybe I'll find a rare individual who appreciates class, who appreciates culture. Well, he's going to be disappointed. There weren't too many of those in the Middle East. He thought it was, but it, it wasn't. Instead, we have a nouveau rich. Nouveau rich, you know what I'm saying? Or Philistines, the rich Jews with no culture. Uh, that's, it becomes a major part of his poetry. A rich Jews with no culture. Now, um, but he found, you know, some, right? Not the way he wanted, but he found some. And so he spends time in, in Egypt. And then it becomes a tour to the Middle East. He comes eventually to Yerushalayim. Uh, and he comes there right after, not long after the Crusaders had captured, um, had been driven out by the by the Muslims. Uh, when when uh, Saladin, uh, the famous Arab ruler, who was the employer, well, the employer of the employer of Maimonides, right? Saladin was the king of Egypt, the sultan. Uh, the Rambam was a doctor eventually of Saladin's son, uh, but not of Saladin. Anyway, but he wasn't anti-Semitic at all. And uh, when he comes to uh, Yerushalayim, oh, he's describing it in, in great detail. Now, before he left, he wrote a bunch of poems called Sefer Anak, in which he expresses his religious hopes in getting Yerushalayim. Today, you get on a plane, you're there in five minutes. As a matter of fact, you don't have to get on a plane. You hit the internet, you see what's going on in Israel instantly, you know. Uh, you know, obviously, it wasn't like that uh, once upon a time. And he has a fascinating um, description of what, what Yerushalayim is like right after uh, the conquest by the Muslims, and it's in the uh, it's on the wall in the, the Ear David. Is that what it's called? Uh, the 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 Migdal David or something that they you know right at the Jaffa Gate. You know what I mean? What do they call that? The Fortress of David or the Citadel or something like that. And um, because he gives an eyewitness description, now, he's a fantastic poet, as I'll talk about later. And and he, I just, you know, I'm going to take the trouble just to describe this very briefly. Uh, if I had time. I'm like Al Kharizi. If you had a patron who would want to do this, you could do a poem a week on here. He's amazing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he says, you know, he's, he's crying when he gets to the tears, he gets to Yerushalayim, and he sees the place of Beis Amigash and so on and so forth. Uh, and after I finished uh, uh, crying and all the rest of it, I saw the, the Beis Amigash place, the Kotel, as we say today, uh, I ran into a Jew. And the guy said, I can tell you come from far away. And I said, What's going on? 
And I said, Mosai Bo Yehidim Liarzos. When did the Jews get to Jerusalem? Because under the Crusaders, they couldn't live in Jerusalem. Amar Miyam Lachtur Yishmeilim Shachnu Yisraelim. When the Muslims captured the city, then the Jews moved in right away. Umaduolo Shachnu Biyos Biyadarelim. How come he, the poet asked the Christians wouldn't let him in? Amar said so the Jews said, "What are you dumb?" They should Amar Kiragnu Elohim. Right? They say we killed their God. You know Jesus. Viyosinu Cherpelahem. And we and we um, uh, mocked him and and did disgraceful things to him. If we would be there, they'd kill us. Isn't this wonderful? The the uh, I'll talk about this on the other side. Al Harizi specializes in taking biblical phrases, Mishnaic phrases, and give them a different twist. Right? Moshe Rabbeinu says the pirate was we all know because of Pesach time. He's saying that about Yashka. Amarti. So he says, I asked this Jew. How exactly did it happen that the Jews returned to Jerusalem? Omar, so the guy says, The Rabbani Shalom was zealous for his name. It's not right for B'nai Esau to be in Kodesh Kodoshim, because that's what happened. They took over the, 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 the mosque and made it a church. And we should Grushim. They might think, that God has rejected his firstborn, meaning Klal Yisrael. Therefore, the guy says, So God stirred up Saladin, you know, in the 1180s. And when Saladin captured the city, he made an announcement, any Jew who wants to can now move to back to Jerusalem. Right? And the guy said, well, that's what we're living in Jerusalem until now. But then, um, and I don't have the time to describe it now, he says, unfortunately, the guy refined to us, we kill each other. Right? In other words, the problem is the Jewish community is, is torn in, in, in factions and we destroy each other. So, you know, that's the uh, contrast from the poetic point of view. Uh, the Crusaders are gone. The Arabs are okay. It's, the conditions are perfect for Jews moving back to Yishalayim, except the Jews themselves. Right? And he goes on to... to, to the cry, you know, this Eish Eish Hamadur Hamachlekes, you know, Eish Hamadur Yom Yom Tolekes Bano Belibo So Mchlekes Im Lo Yichabu Misay Yoshebatom. If we don't, from our own ranks, get rid of all the Machlekes, then we'll destroy to destroy ourselves. So he took a witty thing and turned it into something very serious, which is his um, specialty. That's exactly what he does. All right, let me stop this now. I'll pick this up a little bit later. <coughs> Hi, I'm going to pick up now. I had the north my son. The, the little interruption over there. <clears throat> anyway, I was talking about Al-Kharizi, and I think I'll say how he came to Jerusalem uh, sometime after the Jews returned there. And uh, that Jews have been living there ever since, by the way, ever since Saladin. And uh, he was there in the get-go. But you see, the way he described the Jewish community, they were tearing each other apart, which is the double you do and it was like that for a long time until the bartender showed up 200 years later, 250 years later. Um, <clears throat> that's the way it was. 
And that means there's no pronouncement for a guy like him. <clears throat> so he's a pilgrim, but like many pilgrims, uh, you come to Israel, and on the one hand, you're blown away, and the other hand, you're not. Get it? And by the way, I was always taken, I'm just, as you see, I'm a big fan of his, when he says, when he got to Israel, um, his language is so uh, wonderful, I like it so much, uh, and just read you a, a piece of it. Um, if I would, I would, uh, maybe I'll start a uh, Spanish poetry podcast, Sephardic poetry, if you find somebody's interested in that. I'm a big nut of that stuff. And he says, No, Satimir, it's Nofal, you fain Nof, I went from from Egypt to Yefeim Nof, to the beautiful land of Israel, and I said to myself, Enough in this hot country of Egypt. And he goes to the base of Migdash, I saw, imagine somebody in the 1200s actually getting to see Yerushalayim. You and I are spoiled. That time, there was this beyond the Hasaga of people. I kissed the ground. Like Yaakov said to Yosef, now I'm ready to die. I've seen Jerusalem. And he said, My soul has, gone to, has made a, a, a Leah. It was exiled itself from Spain to Tion. That's like going from Dreld, you know, from the bottom of the pit, Ashkakim to the heavens. And joy raged in it when it got to see Harel, the mountain of the Lord, which it prayed for ever since the day it was born. So, no, at the end of the day, he's a Jewish Jew, you know? How many Hasidim wanted to see it and weren't Zocha? And me, your poor little schnook, who's a chote, how come I had this zechus? And so on and so forth. Uh, so on and so forth. He's got a, it's quite uh, amazing. I like this so much, this on my mother's tombstone in Israel. Anyhow, um, so you got to make a living. So you got to find people, hopefully that are rich and on the other hand will sponsor you. Uh, that's the life of the poet. And so he does a reverse Abraham. He heads north of Israel to the great Jewish communities of the Middle East at that time. Uh, Damascus, Aleppo, and then to Mosul, the top of, uh, you know, he crosses the, the Euphrates River to what we call today Kurdistan, Mosul, capital Kurdistan, and he goes down to Baghdad, eventually to Basra. So he does a reverse of Avram Avinu. It's it's amazing. <clears throat> I don't know if you know this, but you should know it. Abraham did that upside-down V. Avram starts in Orkazim, which is in southern Iraq, near the um, the, the uh, Persian Gulf. And then he moved north to Haran, which means he went to Kurdistan, to where Mosul is. And then he was told by God, Lech Lecha, go from there um, to Canaan. <clears throat> so you go up, and you go down. You go starting from the bottom of Iraq, Avram Avinu, that is. You go up near Kuwait, and you go northwest. Then we hear a certain point. You start going uh, southwest, and you get to Eretz Yisrael. So he did the reverse. Uh, here he encounters many different Jewish communities, which he describes in his poems. Uh, a lot, most of the rich people he encounters are a classic nouveau riche. Um, 
They're a bunch of thirds, you know, they got a lot of money, no class. A lot of money, no class, <clears throat> and they think they have class. And he makes fun of them in the poems and all the rest of it, and I'll talk about later. And uh, he, you know, runs all Jewish communities. He had a hard time making a living. So in other words, the Judaism did not have room for a, a culture expert. That's just interesting, right? <clears throat> they had room for somebody who's, who's an, a, a, a Hebrewist or whatever you call it. <clears throat> On the other hand, um, the Jews are very heavy into um, Arabic poetry and Arabic stuff. They think Arabic is great. It's superior to Hebrew. Now, they're Jewish, but they live in the Arab part of the world. <clears throat> and I would say like this. Culturally, they think the Arabs are superior, you know, uh, which is rough. Uh, it's a little bit like I spoke about in the podcast before the Seder, where the Nerd of Yehuda says that the Jews in Egypt had not only a, a Mariris HaGuf, but a Mariris HaNefesh. Ha, that they were slaves in the in the soul, <clears throat> didn't see any superior in themselves to the Egyptians. So this really bothers him because he's a Hebrew guy. Now he's a Bucking Arabic. Here he gets employed by one rich guy to do something uh, most remarkable, and that is <clears throat> the following: <clears throat> the history of the Arabs is they conquered the world, but nobody knew who they were before, right? And, you know, they're considered camel jockeys, you know, sand jockeys. That's that people made fun of them. Then overnight, they turned around, starting in the 630s, and they mamish conquered the world. So the world was blown away. And the Arabs created a great empire running from the Atlantic Ocean to India, <clears throat> from Spain to India. They did. And when they did, and I've mentioned this before, um, they proceeded to Arabize and Islamize the whole empire. They didn't impose Islam on the Jews and the Christians, but everybody else. In the Arabic language, they kind of did impose <clears throat> So the Jews all learned Arabic in one form or another in order to get along in the street. And in the beginning, I'm sure the Jews just did it like the, uh, you know, Hasidim uh, moving to, uh, you know, New York. You learn what you need to know for business. But after a while, you pick it up. I'm talking about centuries. The Jews became Arabized, Mamish Arabized. <clears throat> now, the Arab language itself had issues because the Arabs, since they conquered such a big area, they considered themselves chosen by God, understandably. And everybody said their language is superior to everybody else's. And therefore, their language should supplant everybody else's, <clears throat> replace it. Now, they were successful to a remarkable degree. What you and I call the Middle East today, typically, take, for example, Syria, Egypt, you know, Lebanon, uh, Libya, North Africa. Those places are not Arab. Long ago, they had their own languages, their own culture, their own everything. You don't need me to tell you that there was an Egypt of the pharaohs with a whole business long before the uh, Muslims conquered it. Same thing with many other, many, many um, all the other places. Syria had a huge civilization of its own. Iraq, Babylonia, Sumeria, Akkadia, and so forth. Persia, Kalvachomer, and that's where we conquered the Arabs. Now, what happened is very fascinating. And there's a nobody got rid of the Muslim stuff. That they all agreed is legit, but they started to push back against the Arabic superiority. The Persians are the ones that led the charge. And the Persians became famous that for a while they were under the Arab language. Then they rejected the Arab language and reasserted the Persian language. <clears throat> there was a guy, Hamdani, I'm not going into all this stuff. So all this happened in the 900s, 1000s, and so forth. And that made both sides. And by the way, each one cussed out the other. You understand? The Arabs said, you're all dirt. We conquered you. You're garnished, McGarnished. And your language is garnished, McGarnished. And the, the, the others responded, here's one from uh, somebody in Andalusia. <laughs> Uh, a Berber. 
He says, your mother, O Arabs, was slave to our mother. If you deny this, you'll be unjust. We will we never tended monkeys. We never weaved mantles. We didn't eat wild herbs. There's no decoding our relationship. You are our slaves, our servants. <clears throat> so each side dissed the other one. The Jews stayed out of the <clears throat> out of the fight, you know. The Jews kept a low profile. <clears throat> and nevertheless, the Arabic superiority idea, Mamish Kanka was Konishwisa by the Jews. <clears throat> it's sad, but it is what it is. <clears throat> and... In these fights, these literary fights, so the non-Arabs produced non-Arab stuff, and the Arabs produced their own literature, uh, including of all different varieties. The most famous work of Arab literature that was considered the most chasha in the Middle Ages was it called the Makama from um, Al-Hariri. This is an Arab, he's a guy. And uh, it, seriously, in the Middle Ages, for long, many centuries, this was considered by the Arabs the second most important book. The first is the Quran, and second is the Makamas of, of what's his name, of Al-Hariri. Uh, it's like a Shakespeare to a classic Englishman. <laughs> first comes the King James Bible, then comes Shakespeare. <clears throat> you know, like that. <clears throat> now this guy, Al-Hariri, the Makamat is very interesting. I would describe it as a rapper. You understand? It's a certain form of rapping. We just talk like this, sometimes, you know, it rhymes, sometimes it doesn't rhyme. Like the lady who spoke by uh, uh, what do you call Biden's inauguration and rapper Stam Devotra. Now I'm not into all that culture; it's not my culture. <clears throat> but I hear it once in a while on the radio, you know, something like you can't not hear it. And I'm sure the best ones are amazing. Correct? I say again, it's not my thing; it's not my culture. But I'm sure the best ones must be amazing, right? Not the worst ones, are the best ones. And that whole style, you know, the language itself comes musical. It's the cadence. It's the tempo. You know, that, that whole shtick. So, in Arabic, according to Hilchah's Arabic, and using a lot of terms from the Bedouins and from the Quran and all this other junk, so this, there was this guy, Al-Hariri, and he composed 50 poems. Each one's like a tale, like Arabian Nights. You get it? Uh, of all kinds of things. All kinds of subjects. Religious subjects, secular subjects, um, X-rated subjects, G-rated subjects, you name it. And these 50 things, the Makam means a Machbert, coming together, people used to read in public sessions. I can't tell you how Chashabu was considered. You know what I'm saying? And it rhymes very nicely in the Arabic. Like if you would, It's like somebody's a master of a language. And people consider this the cat's pajamas. There's nothing better than this Shakespeare type thing. <clears throat> the Makam is Al-Khariri. And people try to imitate it and all the rest of it. And the Jews themselves, they said, wow, this proves that, you know, the Arabic language is better than ours, so we don't have no Shakespeare. Get it? Now, by the way, don't make fun of Shakespeare. Shakespeare's a genius. Shakespeare's a genius, psychologically and in language. You know, you can't go and say it's all garnish. It's not all garnish. So, where's the Jewish Shakespeare? That's the kind of work that they were doing. Um, so, our, but there were some people, so, Al-Kharizim, when he's running around the river, he said like this, he says, the Jews could produce the same thing. They say, you can't even make the Makam is so gavaldic, you couldn't have this book in Hebrew. Hebrew language is such a junk. I repeat, these are from Jews talking. These are from Jews. The Hebrew language is such a junk. It's only good for Pesukim and Chumash and things like that. It's not a real language. It's good for Kedusha purposes, for da, for Davli, for learning. It's not a real language. And boy, did this take him off. You understand? Our hero. He says, it's not true. Matter of fact, you're traitors of Judaism. The Lush and Kodesh is the real Lush and Kodesh, not the Arabic. And we're superior. They say, eh, 
you know, it's a firming thing to say it's not true. And so he got somebody to pay him, and he translated the this classic work of the Arabic, the 50 uh, uh, poems of um, Al-Hariri into Hebrew, totally in Hebrew. It's called Machbrot Etl. He gave it a Hebrew title, and it's not a verbatim translation, but almost. And he put a, instead of Arabic stuff, he puts in Sukkim from Tanakh, and he, he gave it a completely different Hebrew sheen. And it's a masterpiece. And he says, see, the Hebrew language is not dead. Well, this made him think even more. Why am I translating somebody else's thing? I mean, he did it because he got paid by somebody. Why, why am I going around translating somebody else's thing? We could, we Jews could produce our own uh, Machbrot, ETL, our own Makama of, of Al-Khari, where the Hebrew language is, is not inferior. Now, the argument was <clears throat> that people who said the Hebrew language is inferior goes like this. A language adds new words and changes as time goes by. That's the sign of a, of a living tongue. Uh, give you an example. In modern Israeli Hebrew, Israel's been around for about 100 years now, roughly, whatever, you know, with the Zionists and so forth. There's a lot of stuff in Hebrew that doesn't fit the grammar. There's a lot, as we know, there's a lot of stuff in Hebrew that are brand new words or they're stolen from other languages or if they're just made up. Or, you know, you ain't going to find Balagan in, in, the, in the Gemara, you know, in the Chumash. There's a million. That's nothing. That's just a sign that the language is developing. <clears throat> Now, the Hebrew language, you have the Tanakh, and then you don't. There's nothing after the Tanakh. Now, there's the Mishnah, okay. So you have some of the rabbinic writings. But you see what I'm saying? The Hebrew was not a spoken language all the time, constantly expanding. And here are these Jews, these few heroes that I'm talking about who are on the front lines of trying to make the argument that they've written is a living language. And it's true, it hasn't been in use for a couple of years. But the Hebrew language is so unbelievably rich, they argued, that the even with the limited number of words you have now from the Tanakh, it can be twi- it can be twisted and turned and used in so many different ways because that's the genius of the Hebrew that um, it can e- it's, as we would say today Hebrew fighting with one hand behind his back could take all of them and knock them out even though they have thousands of words in a well developed you know uh, um, uh, vocabulary and literature and they've been around now for hundreds of years and they've been uh, you know uh, used by millions of people and so on and so big deal Hebrew is better. Uh, and, and Hebrew is the holy language, right? Now, um, the Jews, you know, they, they nodded their head at him. They say, yeah, right, you know, it's a firm thing to say. He said, no, it's really true. The end of the story is this moved him to um, write his own makamat, uh, to write his own version of the book, a, a totally Jewish one, right? The same thing that that guy did, which is considered so, uh-uh-uh, so I'm going to do the same thing in Hebrew, and he uh, put it together, and he and he called it the the the, the, the Tach really the battles of Tachkamoni. Tachkamoni means wise, but if you know your Tanakh, and you see he's a super bucky in Tanakh, beyond super bucky, beyond super bucky, and he knew Mishnah and and, and you know and and Gemara in a literary way, beyond super bucky. So I don't know if you uh, here. I'm putting out my Tanakh quiz to you. Who is Tachkamoni? So you say, oh, no. they, he's one of the heroes of King David. Uh, if you look in Shmuel, there's a chapter called Giborim. David Amel had about 20, 30 Rambos in his army that were a bunch of nuts, and uh, they're unbelievable fighters. And, uh, you know, they could take these guys down, and that's how he won his battles. According to Gemara, he even had other units like this, but I'm just going to what it says in the book of Shmuel. And it's repeated in Devarim. By the way, Uriachiti, the husband of Basheva, was one of these uh, Rambos. He's listed in that chapter as one of the 30. And the top guy 
the top Rambo in the chapter is a guy, Adino Hoetzni, who's Yoshev B'Shebes Tachkamoni. He was the main hero. He took on and killed 800 guys in a battle. In other words, I want you to just close your eyes and think about that for a second. In the old days, when you have a spear, it says he wielded a spear. You have a spear. He killed 800 guys with a spear. I mean, is that an exaggeration? If it's real, oh my God, right? And he was considered A+. The other guys were losers, the other ones. They only took out 300 or something like that in battle. <clears throat> it's quite a chapter. You look in small base. So, basically, it's a hero of a fight. Who's the fight? I am fighting on behalf of Hebrew against the Arabic. And my purpose is not to convert the guy, and I personally convert the Jews to recognize that their own language is Epis. And he did copy the style of al Hariri. In other words, it's the same business, but it's totally using Hebrew words, and they're all twisted ways of using Pesukim in the Tanakh. Now, today, from a Haredi point of view, people would be offended. How can you take a Pesuk and turn it around to something else? But in the Middle Ages, that's exactly what this Farnum did. That is the way they said you're supposed to use the Hebrew language. You take what's already there and use them in unexpected ways. Uh, <clears throat> and he created a masterpiece, at least <clears throat> in my opinion. That's why I'm going such a long arichas on the guy. <laughs> because um, he created a whole book called the Sefer Tachkamoni, and it's not short. And it's got 50 poems, just like the other guy, some long, some short. And it's on every possible subject in the world. Um, you have a battle between the, the rooster and the hen, between the pen and the sword, between Claudius Raw and the guy, in between the months. Uh, you have um, crazy tales and sublime tales. Stories that can move you to tremendous dvekas. And they have stories that's like boarding on the X-rated. You know what I'm saying? He's a Sephardi. That's what these guys did. And they didn't see no stira between one and the other. And his whole point was to show we can do, like I said, fighting with one hand tied behind my back, two hands tied behind my back. I can still do what they do. And every word will come out from the Tanakh. Now, the the, Al-Khariri did the same thing. He he took Pesukim from the Quran and other Arab stuff, and he used them in very different ways. But it's the rapping style. You see? Now, it's called the Kamat style. But I call it the rapping style, in which it's very short and dun, 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 dun. And... uh, it rhymes once in a while. It doesn't rhyme. It, it kind of rhymes a little bit. It rhymes a bunch of little times. Sometimes it doesn't. But it's it's telling a story, and uh, it's it's like mu- it's like turning words into music. At least to me, it's like listening to a symphony. Now, I never heard of this guy many many years ago, decades ago. I was in Hebrew college, and uh, in the library there, which nobody used, and I saw these two fat books, which I took out, among other things, and it was called Hashira Ha'ivrit. Bisfarad Uba Provencia, the Hebrew poems from Spain and Provence. That's a golden oldie classic put out in the early 50s by Professor Shirman from the Hebrew University. And what he did was, he did a nice selection of the poems, mostly from Spain, the great poets, with like, uh, you know, basic Kahati type notes at the bottom, because they're necessary. So obviously you have the biggies, you know, Yehuda Levi, Shlomo Gavirol, you know, that kind of thing, no question about it. But he also had a bunch of other people I never heard of, right? And I can't say I went through every poem, because the truth of the matter is a lot of this stuff doesn't work for me. You read it as a boring, you know, to me. I just, that was all I could ever show my business. I came on this guy, Al-Kharizi. I read one poem. It's like, amazing. It was a tale of murder and this, and that, and the other. And then another poem about how he was cheated by a shatchan, you know. And then another poem, and one that I'm going to do tomorrow, I hope, about Chazan al And then one beaker of Bebeis Usher, 
when he visits a nouveau riche uh, type rich guy. And they, I was rolling in the floor. My wife was saying, like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I said, I'm reading something funny. What are you reading? I said, from the 13th century. She looked at me like I'm nuts, you know? <laughs> right? But um, th that's that's who he was. And so uh, years later, I was once in Bar Park, and they actually, they actually sold this these two books. And when they, when they still had in Bar Park, these third-hand used, used, used uh, bookshops, and I uh, really jumped on it. And uh, since then, it's it's a selection of Al-Kharizi poems. And since then, whenever I saw elsewhere, there's some Al-Kharizi, I used to get it. And when I was in Israel, basically it goes like this. There's only one good edition with Nakudas, because without Nakudas, it's almost impossible in a lot of these things. Unless you're the world's last expert in the Tanakh, and you know every Pusig and Eov backwards and forwards. I kid you not. Um, and he uses the Psukim and these Mishnah things in such unusual ways, you understand, that that's, that's exactly the charm of it. I remember the Shotgun is trying to convince them to marry this girl, who turns out to be a monster, you know. But he said, and, and the guy's saying like this, well, tell me about it. Is she good looking? Oh boy. That's a Pusig from the Tochachah, which means you'll be stricken mad with the horrors of the Holocaust that's coming. And this guy's talking like a shotgun. Oh boy, you see her? You'll go nuts. That's a classic example how he uses the psukim and the Hebrew expressions, which we're all supposed to know. Now, I don't know. If you don't know Tanakh or anything like that, it might not have the right effect. You might not get it, right? But if you have a basic knowledge of Tanakh and you're not ashamed to look things up, I think you'd have a, a tremendous time uh, because the Hebrew it flows so much. It's like word candy. You see? And uh, he used uh, every type of subject under the sun. <clears throat> and he did the same shtick that Al-Khariri did with the Muslim things. <clears throat> the way Al-Khariri does it, and the Arabs like this, is he tells the whole tale. But the guy telling the tale is not the author. He said, I ran into this guy, and he told me the following tale. And later I found out the guy was full of it or something like that. And that was considered cute. So our author, our hero does the same thing. The two people you have to know are two made-up characters, Haman Ho'ezrochi, who's mentioned in the Tanakh. It's not the same guy at all. And uh, Hever Akeni. This is not the Hever Akeni of the wife of, uh, you know, the husband of uh, the one who killed Sisera, Yael. It's just a made-up names. He says in the introduction, I just use made-up names. And this is the style of yesteryear. You know, the poem always starts by saying like this. Here's I'm Haman Ho'ezrochi, and I was walking on the road, and I had some trouble, and then I ran into a weird guy, and the guy told me the following nutball story or charming story, this, that, and the other. And maybe by the end of the story, you know, he says, I murdered somebody, or they murdered me. And I look closely, and it's, oh, I know you. You're Havrakini, you know? And you're telling me one of your lies again. Or the guy might tell some Gavaldic of shot on the Parsha, and he says, who are you? Oh, it's Havrakini. And then I spend more time with him talking over the Parsha. You find anything in this work, and it became one of the major works of Jewish literature. Uh, like I said before, I could do a podcast on a poem a week here, easy, because they're all Gavaldic, in, in my opinion, or uh, 90% of our. And he has this introduction uh, in which he says, all the rest of it, he says, the Hebrew language has to be rescued to get respect among the Jews. I don't care about the Goyim. That's them. But the Jews, if we don't respect our own, then, it, then it's unforgivable. And it's just long. This stuff goes long. The Hebrew flows, but it goes long. 
and he says, Num Yudabin Shlomo Sparti, Becharizi, Hashem will Kim Nosani Loshem Limudim, God gave me the ability to give to the Gab. And he goes on and on and on, and he says that I'm like Isaiah, like Yeshaya. I had a dream in which I was told, you know, to uh, prophesy, meaning to defend the Hebrew language. I said, I'm not worthy of it, and they touched me with a coal. You know, it's a poem, you know, like they did to Yeshaya. And he was told over here, uh, uh, your job is not to rescue the Hebrew language. Strip the Hebrew Ivrit of the clothes of shame, of slavery that the Jews are put on her. And remove all of her signs of disgrace. And give her a rebirth of youth. Ivrit. And destroy the teeth of those lions. Who make fun of her and roar at her, right? And who would like to tear her to bits, which are the Gayim and unfortunately the Jews as well. And he goes on and on and on over here. And God gave me a, a spirit to open a bunch of menorahs lamps out of the Hebrew language. That's not Arabic, which is the best language, but the Hebrew, just we don't know it. It's got the best diction, it's got the best grammar, it's got the best rhetoric, it's got the best everything. The trouble with Hebrew is, it's like a, a chaste bride. She, you know, she can be beautiful, she's too chneas for anybody to know that. And if you don't take off her veil, you would never know who lies behind, you think it's plain. But if this beautiful bride will remove the, uh, you know, the the scarf, what am I talking about, the, the veil, everybody will fall for her. So what he's saying is like this, we don't know Ivrit. We don't know Lashon Kodesh. It is a big disgrace, and it's a, it's a criticism of the Jews, which is not the usual from type thing. It's a certain criticism of the Jews, right, they don't, they don't realize it, if only they knew that Ivrit is an Eitz Chaim, which can cure everything, in fear digger generations, our great people of the past found in the Hebrew language a Rafu and a Simcha. Today, their descendants stabbed the Hebrew language. Once upon a time, righteousness was there. You know, he's up, that's from Shabbos Chazon. And, uh, and the Hebrew says to, to the Jewish people, you, my children, Jewish people, what have you seen banned in me that you run away from me? Do you do you understand Tanakh a little bit? Do you see that these are all knockoffs of Sukkim? Why do you stay away from me? I was the Moshe Rabbeinu. When God communicated to you the Ten Commandments, Anochi Omadati Ben Hashem Benechem. God was on one side, we're in the other. In the middle was the Hebrew language through which God communicated the language. Right? And we've been, he has been treated like Joseph by his brothers, which is, let's tell them to the Arabs, right? By and taking the Hebrew language and thrown to a pit and torn his clothes, and did the same thing they did to Yosef, uh, and so on and so on and such, and it goes on and on and on and on. 
Therefore, his arati lodge by keres abayis emadim smecha. I'm taking up for emadim smecha. I want her to do right. Lasurim nucha, and um, so and, and and he says later on, you know, I'm imitating the al kharir, but I'm going to do it in the Hebrew, and uh, it's too long for me to, to to do this at length. I would like to do it at length, but today's supposed to be just a, a bio, and uh, he even has a second. Uh, and he, by the way, he says. Uh, I didn't take anything with the Arabs, but I'm offering this for the Jewish people. <laughs> Anybody wants to learn about Ivrit, come and, and, and eat from my book. And he said, maybe I made a mistake here or two, and maybe I shot my mouth off because I told you, he's like the Arabs. Sometimes he runs close to the X-rated. Close. Everybody makes a mistake. The greatest people made mistakes. I'm going to make mistakes also. But, you know, I apologize beforehand and so forth. So he found the guy who he mentions it there who paid for it. And then he opens his first poem, uh, which is the intro. And he says he ran a bunch of uh, young Jews, intellectuals, scholars, Tamil Chacham included. And they were talking about the fact that, you know, Hebrew is, is fine for Lush and Kurdish, it's fine for for learning yeshiva, for davening, but that's it. You understand? You know, the, 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 the Hebrews, the time of Hebrews passed this day. Okay? And, um, you know, uh, and they say, these are young from guys. Have you find anything as good as Al-Kharid, this Arab? No, let's face it, they kill us when it comes to literature, to expression, to beauty of the language. Oh, you know, that the Arabic language is so superior and so, and all the rest of it, and I couldn't stand it. The author says, when I heard this, right, and I wanted to explode, but I kept my mouth shut, and I said, Arabic is a chashua language. No, 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 no question. That is true. Ha'achronus b'rishonus, but kul and neg the b'zuyis and moshonus are same moshonus. And Arabic is is superior to all the other languages of the world. I grant you that. In other words, it's okay, but it's number two, not number one. It's number two, right? Chutz miloshan hakodesh, ki miloshan hakodesh di b'ha'elim neviyov. Miloshan hakodesh is the language that God spoke. V'higdish b'arzinai kruav. And God would not use language number two. Right? So what's wrong with you? And he goes on to defend the Hebrew and, 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 and so on and so forth. And you end up with an amazing book. Now, half the time you're lying, uh, laughing, half the time you're crying. That's who he is. He can control you with his rapping. It's called Makama. Half the time you're laughing. Half the time you're crying because when he, you know, he he's a magician. When he wants to make you do this, he knows how to do this. Uh, when he wants to make you laugh, oh boy, uh, this is amazing. Now, in my humble opinion, he's like the best of the poets. I wouldn't, you know, I mean, I get that someone could argue with that, and you know, they say Yehuda Levi's better than this, and someone else is better than that. I I hear that, you know, I I get it, uh, but I'll tell you one thing. Even the greatest of the Sephardic poets were hooked in this idea that the Arab language is like perfect. You won't believe it. Moshe Ben Ezra, who's the number one Sephardi 
Slichus guy, the Salchan. They use him all the davening. He was from Moshe Ben Ezra. He has a book describing the rules of Hebrew poetry in Arabic. He writes it, and he's got you know. Uh, it's crazy, you know, what are the subjects and how do you write it? Well, we should imitate the Arabs like this, and if Hebrew is done properly, we approach the perfection of the Arabs. That's how he writes. And he was like, you know, Moshe Ben Ezra, one of the greatest of our poets, uh, one of the leading from our people. Uh, and in his, um, in his book, which I have the old edition from Halpern from the 1920s, translated from the Arabic into Hebrew, recently somebody else did it again. And, you know, what are you supposed to write about? A wine, love, and song. The beauty of country life, love, sickness. These are chapter headings. And the separation of lovers, unfaithful friends, old age, vicissitudes of fortune and death, confidence in God, the glory of poetry. Oh, boy. And he, he wrote another book, uh, the, uh, what was it, the Tarshish or something, where um, to explain to Hebrew poets how they should compose their poems based on the structure of Arabic poems. Arabic poems. Not our hero. He said, we can, we like I said before, the Lashon Kodesh has unbelievable, let me put it different, infinite power. The Lashon Kodesh is infinite power because it comes from God is infinite. But you have to actualize the potential to use the cliche that they use nowadays. And we don't even try. So I'm going to try. And uh, as I said, uh, it became an amazing work. Uh, I don't know why they put him in the Rishonim book because he's not a classical Rishon, but the people held from him. And this book was printed and reprinted and reprinted. Although... It was never printed with the Nikudos, and to understand it, there was a guy in 1952 in Israel, Toporovsky, who did, and I was once in Israel, that was a lucky day, I found two things I was looking for for years in a, in a used bookstore, including Toporovsky, I still have it, I should get it, it's in very delicate condition, I should get it up, and I also got the Machmer CTO, but I'm not so interested in his knockoff of the Arabic stuff, I'm sure he's a genius, and I've seen some of it, he's a genius, but I'm like him. It didn't, you know, the fact that you could produce Shakespeare in Arabic is one thing. And it is. I'm not taking away. And uh, believe me, I worked in the translation field. I'm not like him. But, um, uh, you know, I mean, I did the Gemara stuff. But, you know, I admire that. And, and I have the greatest respect. But when you read the Tachkamoti, it's a Jew talking for Jews about Jewish stuff. Even if he talks about Goyim. And believe me, he's got every type of Jew there. The frumi, the scoundrel, the cheat. The, the pietist, the hypocrite, the, the what do you call it, the super Talmud Chacham, he's got everybody here. I don't, you know, nothing escapes him. Because the guy wandered around, was in place to place and back and back. And uh, eventually he went down all the way to Basra, where, where Kazdim was, and then he moved his way back. The poem I want to discuss tomorrow about Tefillah was in northern Iraq, where he talks about Piyutum and Chazanus and all the rest of it. <clears throat> now, the problem's like this. If you are good in Hebrew... And I know some people here listen from Eretz Yisrael, and some of the people who listen to Eretz Yisrael know Ivrit, you know, not everybody does, and so forth. So if you have, I, I don't know how to explain this, if you have any sense for cultivating the Hebrew language, uh, and not just for dominating and things like that, if you have any sense of culture, uh, now maybe you don't, but if you do, then this is something you want to see. Um, if you have if you have any sense that you want to enrich your own feeling of luxuriating in Lush and Kodesh, then this is for you. If, if you know, it's not. If on the other hand, now listen closely, if on the other hand, you say like this, you know, I would love to, it sounds great, it's fascinating, I just, Nebuch, I don't have the, the Kalim. Yep, I don't understand this. The, the words won't, will, will be too much for me. 
uh, and I can't look up everything with the you know with a dictionary all the time. I just can't do that. So I definitely hear this. So I just want to tell you something. Um, about twenty years ago, approximately, uh, people. Well, let me let me phrase it this way: People have known about the, those who know, those who were uh, educated, know about the Safer Tachimonium. It's been around forever and reprinted many times. Um, and there was a there was a Reform Rabbi about a hundred seventy years ago or less, uh, Reichert, who uh, did a translation, which was awful. Uh, however, about 20 years ago, a guy from Oxford or Cambridge or something like that, David Simcha Siegel, I do not know who he is, he says he's a, a lecturer in, in, in Ben-Gurion University. Okay. So he must be an Englishman. And he did um, a translation published by the uh, Littman Library called The Book of Takamoni, Jewish Tales from Medieval Spain. Uh and it's a masterpiece. Uh, so it's an English translation. It is not word for word at all. And I give him all the credit for it. He did to to, to Al-Kharizi's Tachimoni what Al-Kharizi did to Rama's Murdebuchim. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a translation and make it understandable to you. So it's not going to be word for word. And uh, I'm I'm scratching the surface when I'm telling you this. But I will strongly recommend, if you're interested in what I said today, if you're not, you're not. But if you're interested in what I said today, and I consider him one of the most uh, fascinating persons. Then um, this book by David Simcoe Siegel is a fat book too. He goes through the he translates the entire book in his own English, like Elizabethan English, using Englishisms that are that will make sense to the reader uh, where the, where the Hebrew wouldn't. And it's a certain way of uh, of getting through the book. The best thing in the world is if you. Do the English, and then after you did the English, then you read Hebrew together with it, sort of like doing art scroll in reverse, you know. And uh, I think you get a great deal of, of, of benefit out of it. A number of years ago, not that many, um, in the last decade, I was once in a, in a used bookstore in Yerushalayim, because that's where they have only the good stuff, and I saw that it came out in Tubshin Ayin, so that's uh, 2010, uh, from uh, Ben Svi, Yad Ben Svi, a big, nice, fancy schmancy edition. It's almost like a coffee table book of the whole dog on Tachkamoni with uh, nice notes at the bottom, the entire book. Madurat Yosef Yalom Benoya Katsum Tura, whatever it is. Al Kharizi's Tachkamoni. So it's published by Ben Svi uh, Foundation, which is a well known academic sort of thing in Jerusalem. And uh, that's, the, that's the one to get. It's a brand new. And, uh, you know, you get all, all the text and all the rest of it. I wish it was bigger print, but that's because I'm not as young as I once was. Um, and to tell you the truth, the Sherman one that I said before has better notes. But this is just fine. And if you go through the English one particularly, which which you'll love the English English translations of it. He did it like a new job using totally English expressions. And uh, and it's very good, and and it it's that rapping. It rhymes here, it rhymes there. It's just uh, gavaldic. And uh, then you'll let, let me put it this way: then you'll have a much more enriched experience of the Hebrew language. And you'll have a much greater idea of who the Sephardim were in the uh, Golden Age. Okay, uh, and again, he's humorous. Not always. Sometimes he's not. The other poems, poets, you, they were not into humor. Uh, you know, Yehuda Levi ain't into humor. Uh, what's wrong with humor? Uh, 
into irony the same way. Uh, he's a master of it, okay? And uh, he's got this Jewish guy that cheated everybody in town, and then the Arabs find out about him. He's going to kill him. He's like, I'm to business, I'm telling you. And about being cheated by the, like I said before, by the Shachan, and uh, um, about this, uh, <laughs> this guy was on the on, in the caravan, and then uh, he was. They were going to attack this uh, beautiful girl. Turns out to be a guy. She uses the he uses the girl appearance as his way to uh, to get you off guard and then kill you. Oh, you know, it's all you know, like a thousand one Arabian Nights. Uh, but on the other hand, he also has about uh, the big rabbis, all the rest. He has a poem about uh, the uh, a wonderful poem about the great um, poets before him. You know, he evaluates who's greater among the Mashoris for it. So this is something you have to be into. That's all I can say. This is something you have to be into. If you're not, then I get it. Uh, but here you have, in my opinion, as I keep saying before, like the Hebrew poetry is best and most supple. And uh, if you know Tanakh, you'll, under, you'll see it presented in a way that wasn't that, that you never would have imagined. Okay? Uh, and it goes to show you how you can do it. And... I've written a few poems here and there, you know, I won't go into my personal life. Uh, and I've been heavily influenced by this style. Okay? Uh, so I'm not a rapper, but I'm a 12th, I'm a 13th century Hebrew rapper. <laughs> okay? Uh, and uh, in the funny stories are very serious lessons. And sometimes in the very serious lessons are also funny stories. So you're dealing here with a genius of literature, uh, but it's not, it's not the Torah type thing that you usually talk about. Uh, now, some people have a very narrow definition of Jewish. Uh, just Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. And the Haskalah was always like a revolt against what was regarded as the excessively narrow definition of Judaism as just Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. In our time, we have a wider definition by force. Uh, you go to uh, the bookstores, you see things about Judaism in all kinds of ways. A lot of it's dumb, in my opinion, but okay. But it's just responding, nevertheless. There, however, a lot of it's not dumb. Take, for example, just for example, um, there's a lot of from novels out there now, which, which, uh, which you know, you, if you talk Hassam Sover, you're writing from novels. It'd be a tired to the sauce. You wouldn't even know what that means. But you and I understand right away. There's a big need for from novels. Uh, there's a big need for from music. If they don't do this, they'll go to that other stuff. Uh, history, right? This podcast, things like that. You go to any bookstore, there's whole sections. Now, maybe about the Gadol, other things, but it's not only. And there's just a big thirst for this. So, the Haskell in Spain was of this sort. And it wasn't, this, you know, they didn't have the novels and stuff like we have now, but they expressed it in this wider sense of the poetry. And, um, again, I'll conclude by saying, uh, for those who are more scholarly, if you want to understand the Murna Vukum, certainly the first time around, the first time around, uh, Al-Kharizi is the way to go because it's very easy to read him. He was a genius at translating. Uh, he never did find the settled life, as far as I know, as far as anybody knows. He died in uh, Aleppo, which is a rich Syrian community, as you know. So he must have had, uh, you know, patrons there. He was about 60 years old when he died. He wasn't old. Uh, you know, so I, I, I imagine, you know, the Halabi Jews, like in Deal, you know, they... They were supporting him to some degree, or maybe one of them was. I, I don't know. Uh, he didn't have a happy life, but you know something the po po poets never do. Okay, they like need the schmerz, they need the the sadness and all this kind of stuff in order to make these things happen. But I think the sense of patriotism for Lush and Kodesh, for the Hebrew language, uh, and the sense that the Hebrew language 
has tremendous possibilities, and you don't have to borrow from other, you know, words because he never does that. Everything is pure Hebrew. Now, I'm not saying it's prohibited to borrow from other language, and in modern Hebrew we do that right and left, correct? You know, no question about that. The opposition, you know, right? Uh, but uh, that's because we're not a race today of of al Kharisis. Uh, the modern Zionist movement, I mean, the people in Israel are what they are. Uh, a language is going to develop like that. But it's nice to see a good model of the real thing. That's all I want to say. It's nice to see a good model of the real thing. Uh, tomorrow, I hope to do for the tefillah a poem of his, one of the 50 in the um, Takamoni, which deals with the subject of Piyutim and Chazanim and all the rest of it. Uh, and then you'll see an example of him in action. Again, I'm, uh, as you can tell by the way I'm talking, you know, I really am into this guy. And, uh, you know, others also, I like I like the big three, the big four, Shmuel Nugget, Shlomo Gavirol, uh, they were great people, Yudal Levi, Moshe, Moshe Ben Ezra, no question about it, uh, and Avram Ben Ezra, you know, they, they, you know they, they don't need my Askama, but nobody turns me on the way Al-Kharizi does. Uh, and with that, I'll leave you, I've spoken long enough, uh, it's a different world, that we're talking about uh, in the Middle East of some years ago. By the way, I remember the Arabs wrote about him that you know he had bad mazel. He came to the Middle East and he, he knew Arabic better than the Arabs, and he certainly knew Arabic better than the Jews. But everybody made fun of him because he's Spanish, so he speaks with what we would call today a Western Arabic accent, like let's say a Moroccan accent. At that time, they made fun of you if you had the wrong accent. The same way a guy could be a genius and show up in Baltimore speaking with, uh, not that we Baltimoreans don't have an accent, you know, let's say he came a place from, I don't know, someplace in Tasmania and they spoke a very funny uh, kind of English. So he could be a genius, but people make fun of him because the way, the way they talk. Um, that wasn't fair. Uh, but nevertheless, when you write, nobody hears your accent. Uh, so all this is part of, part of yesteryear. Again, I want to thank our um, sponsors today, uh, the Clydemans, and I hope uh, Richard's dad and everybody has uh, and Elias Neshama, and, and uh, he was, this is more of a humanistic type of uh, uh, bio, so I hope you be in his spirit. And uh, the Shabalski sisters, as I said before, <laughs> Frager and Dinowitz, and everybody should have a Rafua, and uh, this should be a Zachus in the memory of those people who, uh, who didn't have an easy time. It was a different America. It was different Baltimore, certainly, uh, than, than the time that they came to this country. But they do have the satisfaction of having grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and all this, who are going in the Derek HaTorah, the Talmud HaKam, and others. And uh, with that, I all bid you a, uh, a, a, a good uh, moed. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.